Hello to everybody joining us um, for today's Deeply Talk, um, where I'm pleased to say I am joined by the lead researcher from Samuel Hall, um, Marion Guillaume. Marion has led uh, or was the lead author uh, of an excellent uh, recent report looking into the conditions um, of children returned from Europe uh, to Afghanistan. Um, from Europe to Afghanistan, experience of child returnees. Um, we will be talking about the changing conditions um, of return from Europe, uh, an accelerating program, and a piece of groundbreaking research which for the first time has really placed the voices um, of Afghan child returnees uh, at the center of a piece of very solid research to give us an idea both of what role they've been, they have played, the children themselves, um, sometimes alone and sometimes with their families um, in being returned to Afghanistan and to give us some sense um, of what that transition from Europe to Afghanistan is like when seen from the point of view of the child themselves. Now, there may still be some people joining us on today's Deeply Talks. We'll be talking for the next half an hour or so. Um, I'll be in conversation with Marion Guillaume. My name is Daniel Howden. I'm the senior editor of Refugees Deeply. If you're listening in and would like to send us any questions for today's conversation, um, then look up the hashtag Deeply Talks um, and feel free to tweet it at, at us there. Um, we'll pick up those questions and we'll endeavor to uh, feed them into today's discussion. So just to get started, Marion, um, last month you published um, for Save the Children from the Samuel Hall, uh, this report, which look, looked at and spoke to uh, a large number of uh, children returned from Europe to Afghanistan, um, the first piece of research of its kind. Um, I wonder if we could start today's conversation um, just by you giving us a, a brief overview um, of, of what uh, your main findings and uh, why you undertook this particular piece of research. Sure, thanks. And uh, first, just to say it's a pleasure to join you today. And please cut me off if I start. Um, the, the research we did, what we really wanted to do was not to bring necessarily numbers or statistics, but to examine the lives and experiences of children returning from Europe to Afghanistan in the last few years, and to bring to the table um, a voice which has been missing, which is, like you said, that of the children themselves. Um, so specifically, we wanted to understand the processes and consequences of return from their perspective. So to be clear, the objective wasn't to say that no one should ever be returned to Afghanistan. However, there are clear procedures around returns and conditions which must be met, especially when it comes to children. So what we did, we took a, a rights-based perspective to really understanding how returns from Europe are happening. Um, so in order to do so, we spoke with 57 children who returned from Europe in Kabul and Herat. Um, we spoke to all types of returning children. So children who returned as unaccompanied minors, children who returned with their families, and those who returned um, who technically weren't children anymore, but essentially came back just on their 18th birthday. 
And the, the reason for that was that we really wanted to present an overall perspective of what this return experience is like and what they're seeing once they get back to Afghanistan. Um, and this perspective was completed with research which was led by Save the Children in Norway and Sweden with children who were there either awaiting asylum um, decisions or who were about to come back. So at a very high level, um, what we found is that um, best interest procedures are not being consistently followed in asylum processes. Uh, the safeguards which exist uh, for the benefit of children in terms of their returns are not being consistently implemented. Uh, children are receiving very little child-specific support um, when coming back from Europe. The majority of the support that they're getting is more provided at the household level and not necessarily adapted to the challenges which the children specifically will face. The conditions in Afghanistan that they're facing, whether from a physical or a social or material perspective, are not in line with the rights guaranteed to children by the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and essentially, you know, what we're seeing is that what's being called return, and in theory is supposed to be a durable solution, um, is not durable or sustainable. For some of these children, I mean, they've never even been to Afghanistan before. They were born in Iran or Pakistan and migrated from there, and they're being sent back to a country that, you know, isn't home and told to reintegrate there after years and years, potentially in a different context where they had friends and school and a life. Um, so the key recommendation stemming from the report at this point is to, for the time being, stop returns of children to Afghanistan um, and then to really start implementing best interest procedures properly, strengthen the returns processes from a child safeguarding perspective um, and making sure that the governments and organizations involved in returns are coordinating much more strongly. So that's, that's the very high-level overview, I think, if you want to maybe start diving into Well, th thank you. I mean, it's always difficult to, um, to reduce uh, quite a complex and nuanced piece of work to, to a quick introduction, but I think that does a good job. Um, and I appreciated you taking, um, making the effort to point out that this isn't about objecting wholesale to the principle of returns themselves. Um, we should be honest. And individuals' rights groups who have serious misgivings about the returns process. Now, part of that is based on the generalized perception um, that European countries are looking for ways to wriggle out of their commitments on fundamental rights, wriggle out of their responsibilities um, under European frameworks and agreements. Um, and part of this reason, or one of the indications um, that these fears are well-rooted, um, was news that's recently emerged suggesting that an acceleration of uh, returnees of, of of returning of returns for vulnerable Afghans, um, whether they're children, adolescents, just over the eighteen over eighteen, um, was the news that um, Denmark and Norway um, have various involvements um, in the proposed uh, camp on the other side. Um, 
could you talk about um, that a little bit, explain to our listeners um, what we're talking about there and also comment, if you would, on on the, the pressure that's from the European side to, to increase the number of people being returned? Sure. Um, so, so to speak to what you were messaging, uh, uh, speaking about in terms of uh, Norway and Denmark, uh, what we saw is a little bit earlier this year, um, the Norwegian and Danish governments um, trying to speak to the Afghan government in order to set up facilities in Kabul, um, which would allow them to essentially um, to, to support children is what they're saying but which would allow them to return children who are unaccompanied or not with their family um, and not necessarily have the, the support that they need on return. So, I mean, very much in line, I think, with what you're saying in terms of finding other ways to return potentially vulnerable individuals. Um, and this is a, you know, a type of facility that we've seen in other contexts is generally not in the best interest of the child. Um, and in the context of Afghanistan specifically, where for what we've seen from past research on reintegration, uh, personal networks, social networks are crucial in terms of social integration, in terms of being able to find employment, um, in terms of feeling welcome in the community. Um, you know, this, this goes against all of that. Um, and it's, it's in line with broader trends. I mean, I don't think it'll be a surprise to most people listening that we've seen migration um, increasingly a topic of debate in Europe, um, a talking point by conservative political parties in particular who've been pushing back on a, a, the more open approach in previous years, especially in Scandinavia and Germany. Um, recent figures are suggesting that the EU is tightening borders um, considering alternatives um, to see, you know, where they could have, where, where they could try to shift the border, essentially, um, rejecting asylum claims. Um, we've seen in 2016 already, in um, an attempt to kind of facilitate this, the Joint Way Forward Agreement, which was signed between the EU and Afghanistan, which overall um, makes it easier to forcibly return Afghans, including children, on their 18th birthday. Um, and this is an agreement which has been denounced by a number of human rights or organizations as essentially allowing deportation to an unsafe context. Um, and, and just to be clear, for those who, who aren't as familiar with Afghanistan, we're talking here about a context which has um, been recently redeclared by the UN Secretary General and changed from a country in a situation of post-conflict to a country um, in a situation which is ongoing conflict. Um, there have been the greatest number of civilian casualties, according to NAMA, in the first half of this year, the deadliest ever for Afghan civilians. Um, and even the latest uh, UNHCR eligibility guidelines are looking at um, the protection needs of asylum seekers, is saying that internal flight alternatives, um, which have been used to claim that the risks are limited to a certain part of the country and people can be returned, say, to Kabul, um, should no longer be used. So kind of from all sides. <laughs> well, picking up um, a little bit on what you're saying about the situations um, under which returns um, are pushed onto, onto children, um, I'd just like to talk a little bit about our most recent investigation um, titled The Vulnerability Contest. 
Um, if anyone's following, um, they can see on Twitter, we've posted links both to um, Marion's reports and um, to vulnerability contests so that people can see. But the, the contest uh, investigation looked at, at the lives of three um, Afghan teenage boys, um, two of them born in Iran, one of them born in Afghanistan. And I'd just like to recap on that to give um, our listeners a sense of who we're talking about and the kinds of lives um, that some Afghan asylum seekers, um, young Afghan asylum seekers in the European system, what they've gone through. Um, I'll use the life of, of one boy um, who we refer to in, in our piece. He's recently turned 18, but he arrived as a child. Um, he grew up in, uh, in Iran, as many hundreds of thousands of Afghans have the child of a refugee family from earlier conflicts. Um, he was arrested in Iran. Um, he lives there undocumented, as do many hundreds of thousands of other Afghans, um, unable to afford the permits that would allow him to, to live there legally. Having been arrested, he was given a choice between going to prison, um, being sent back from Iran to Afghanistan, a country that he hadn't visited, he'd never been to before, and one where there's ongoing conflict, or being given the chance to win um, a residence permit and legal status for the first time in his life by agreeing to go and fight for an Iran-backed um, militia um, in Syria. So age 16, um, and seeing no other way out, um, he found himself transported from Iran to the front lines of the conflict against ISIS um, in Syria fighting for a mainly ethnic Hazara um, Afghan brigade uh, under the Iranians um, in some of the worst, um, worst conditions imaginable in Syria. Um, he was later, after two tours in Syria, able to escape from Iran while on leave um, and reach Greece via, via Turkey. Now, I met him in the miserable conditions at the Greek asylum camp of Moria on the island of Lesbos. Um, he's now been there for a year um, and children like him, uh, we interviewed and documented the cases of five of these children just in Moria um, alone. So there are, there are many kids who've been through these kinds of experiences. He now finds himself essentially um, back in the same position. Um, Europe is offering him um, only one choice really, which is um, he can his only way out of Moria, it seems at the moment, is going to be a one-way ticket back to Afghanistan. So after all of those years, after all of that suffering, Europe is basically um, putting him back in the same position that the Iranian authorities were. So the interesting thing was that as part of this investigation, we spoke off the record um, to some serving members of the Greek Asylum Service. Um, some of them uh, seconded to the European Asylum Support Office, IASO, and they described to us the pressure to go faster and just a generalized atmosphere in which the feeling was that uh, countries were closing their borders and that there was a pressure there to reject asylum cases, um, even when there had been very clear, um, very clear grounds for, for considering these, um, these children to be vulnerable. Now, I'm going to bring you back in. Um, uh, Marion at this stage. Just 
I'd like to understand a little bit more. Your research took in voluntary return cases uh, and non-voluntary. Um, could you talk to us about what kind of role the children themselves uh, got to play in the in the decision to return? I, um, I'd be curious to hear, hear you explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think before, before I go into that, one of the things I'd like to highlight is that when we talked about voluntary or, or forced returns in the context of our research, um, we're talking about it from the perspective of the children, which is essentially to say we asked them, you know, whether or not it was a voluntary return. And um, that doesn't necessarily coincide with the perspectives of the returning governments who may say in some cases what we've seen that it is a voluntary return whilst the child was essentially told you don't have a choice, you can either go back and maybe, you know, your family gets some money while you go back or you go back anyways. Um, so just that to preface. Um, in theory, if you're, if you're looking at the, the guidelines on the best interests of the child, the best interests of the child should trump any migration management consideration. Um, the child's right should come first regardless of their status. And so, you know, there are very clear procedures in terms of how children um, should be interviewed um, whilst through these procedures, the degree to which the information which they provide can be taken into account, um, noting that you know, children may not be able to provide information as clearly or as specific as adults, and that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be taken into account. Um, you know, the procedures need to be tailored to um, the, the ability of the children to express themselves in a, meaning, in a meaningful way, especially when you're considering children who've been through what in many cases are very traumatic experiences. I mean, um, even in our interviews in Afghanistan, the stories that they had to tell about the trip to Europe came up again and again. Um, in practice, what we saw is that while Article 12 of the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, requires that the views of the child be given due weight in accordance with their age and maturity, um, a lot of the children didn't feel involved in the decision. Um, so we did quantitative surveys with 53 of the children with whom we spoke, and 33 of these said that they were not at all involved in the decision to return. Um, so, you know, while obviously in some cases this may be a perception, um, there are several kind of concerning follow-up facts to that, where we had a few children saying, for example, that they felt that their translator wasn't very good or that, you know, like you saw in your research, I think one of the cases you cited was saying that he wasn't even asked about his time fighting and felt that the questions were biased already to elicit reasons not to give him asylum. Um, and so, you know, we had one boy who was saying that the authorities were treating him like a criminal and he didn't feel like he was being listened to in an open fashion. Um, and there's a second level where the question of voluntariness also becomes um, quite interesting, and that's at the familial level. So we had several case studies we saw where children returned with their family, and the decision was taken by the parents um, against their children's wishes. Um, so, you know, children who were saying that they were happy, that they were going to school, um, that they liked life and who said, oh, or my mother or my father, you know, said we had to go back, they were losing hope, um, we should just return to Afghanistan. Um, and so that's an additional layer of complexity, I think, when you're talking about um, return, because obviously, you know, this question of best interest of the child, but at the same time, um, prioritizing 
being in a, a strong family environment is also important. Um, so we saw in terms of the number who said their return was voluntary, only 23 of the children with whom we spoke even said that it was a voluntary return. Um, and even in some of those cases, they told us that they subsequently considered not returning to Afghanistan at all after that decision, um, which I think is very telling. This is Daniel Howden speaking to uh, Marion Guillem from Samuel Hall. Um, we're talking on today's um, Deeply Talks uh, about Afghan children being returned from Europe uh, to Afghanistan. Now, Marion, one thing that jumped out of um, your research and um, is something that I've read about some instances of um, in, other, in other circumstances. Sometimes the returns that we're talking about are Afghan children who have been in the European school system. Um, sometimes they're children who, for the first time, are getting a better access to education. Um, and the returns process happens um, at a rate which creates considerable anxiety um, and a kind of dark anticipation. Um, it's worth pointing out that um, some children inside this system, they're coming up to 18. Um, and really, the nature of this means that turning 18 um, can mean that your birthday is essentially a deportation ticket. Um, could you tell us a little bit more? Um, we do have a tendency to focus in on um, the rights of children. It's an understandable focus. Um, but I think it's, um, it's a bit of a problem of the protection system um, and generally um, this kind of focus to assume that from one day to the next, um, people move from being children with needs to being adults um, who, uh, who no longer have the same rights um, or needs. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, what came out of your research in terms of people who were on the cusp of 18 and the kind of the psychological impact on them of leaving behind a context like Sweden um, and facing return to Afghanistan. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really important point to make, I think. Um, it's something which one of the children we interviewed actually said explicitly, and he, you know, he kind of asked, he said, so before I turn 18, I, it's, you know, I shouldn't go back to Afghanistan, and then suddenly the next day I can come back and, and it's all right. Um, and if you look at the way the process happens, um, you know, for example, in Sweden, essentially they summon you to a turning 18 meeting um, where essentially they tell the children, um, you know, this is what's going to happen. Your case is now an adult asylum seeker case. Um, you're going to have to handle all of these things that you were being supported on beforehand on your own. Um, and that's how it is. Um, and it's definitely something which came out a lot um, in the consultations in Sweden and Norway that Save the Children did, um, where young people spoke a lot about the question of age assessments, for example, um, which are often used to kind of corroborate whether or not they are the age they say, and that they felt that these were often arbitrary and, and unfair and in and of themselves kind of highlighted the, the hypocrisy of this question of turning 18, since in many cases we're not even sure how old exactly these children are and yet are making decisions about what type of support which they should be getting. Um, they also spoke a lot about how the uncertainty and the feeling of never feeling safe um, can make people sick or really worried. Um, 
the, the asylum process can take years. They can get temporary permits, temporary permits, and then be sent back. Um, there, and there is a phenomenon, I mean, it's not something we, we delved into ourselves, but of ch unaccompanied children committing suicide um, while waiting for asylum decisions. And while it's not something that we researched, it was actually raised. I think raised. we might have uh, temporarily lost uh, Marion there. Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Hi, Daniel, can you hear me? Hello. Hello. I think we're back. Okay. Um, Marion, can you also hear me? Yes, I can hear you quite well. Okay. Great. Um, sorry, I went off. Uh, I went off the line there just as you were discussing um, the the effects um, of potential deportation orders um, on the psychology um, of Afghans on that borderline between um, between being a child and uh, becoming an adult at eighteen. Um, if you could uh, finish up your your point about what you were saying. Sorry, my line got lost temporarily. No problem. Um, just in, in brief then, um, while, while the question of the psychology when, when they're in Sweden is something which we only looked at very tangentially, it actually came up spontaneously in some of the conversations. Um, and even one of the case, one of the case studies we conducted um, with one of the children who'd since returned to Kabul um, noted a suicide attempt prior to being deported. Um, and, and we heard several of the, the persons interviewed parents, especially in Sweden and Norway, stating that they were worried about their children's well-being and one mother noting that her daughter had threatened to kill herself if they had to return. Um, I'd like to wrap up today's conversation. Um, if you could just give us a little bit of a sense of what these children are being returned to, what Kabul a couple is today, um, and whether or not some of the basic safeguarding um, that the kind of European countries are committed to, um, whether that's really happening on the ground. So uh, an overview, if you would, um, of what it means to go back into Kabul, what um, people can expect waiting for them on the other side, from schools to general conditions and security, um, and also a thought on the legal considerations. Absolutely. Um, so, so we talked earlier a little bit about the, the security situation in Kabul, so I won't go into that in too much detail, but very broadly, um, you know, the incidence of threats has increased. There have been increasing numbers of civilian deaths in Kabul. Um, so there's kind of this broad high-level threat to their physical well-being. Um, some of the children we spoke to stated that they've been, someone had attempted to recruit them to fight in combat um, commit acts of violence or engage with armed groups, um, which links back to the research which, which you did. One of the interviewees, we, we had actually told the story of being deported from Europe to Afghanistan, trying to go back to Iran where his family was, ending up fighting in Syria, and then being deported back from the Turkish border to Afghanistan again. Um, and there's also, you know, the kind of more specific risk to children who are returning from abroad. 
um, this fear of being targeted because they're westernized, because they've been abroad and, you know, might be viewed as having money, for example, because they were abroad um, or, or just as someone different. And so that's a threat that, you know, has been felt by some of the people with whom we spoke. Um, in terms of the more kind of material conditions that people are facing, they're, they're not aligned with the conditions um, which you know, are laid out in the CRC. Um, very few children, only 16 of the 53 who we did the quantitative survey from are currently at school, whereas when in, they were in Europe, a lot more of them were. Now, admittedly, they're older and perhaps less likely to be in school, um, but this is still a steep drop off and in some cases kind of makes you wonder, you know, would they not have been better served by being able to finish their education and come back and contribute more productively to society. Um, one of the big elements to come up that I just do want to come back to is the question of uh, psychosocial well-being um, and, and safety. So you have a lot of children, like we said, who are returning to an environment in which they may never have been. Um, in some cases, whilst they may be with their immediate family, they may be far from their original province of origin. Um, so we had, for example, a family originally, I believe, from Ghazni, which is now in Kabul. So again, they're far from a lot of their network and may not be in stable living conditions. Um, we, we saw very across the board children exhibiting negative symptoms of psychosocial well-being, talking about sadness, talking about worry, about missing their life back in Afghanistan. This is something for which there's just very little support in Afghanistan. Um, while local NGOs have been trying to address this gap, um, there's very little institutionalized support, although it is an increasing priority with the recognition that it's a need kind of beyond even this population of returnees from Europe. And then finally, just one of the last issues that did come up in, in some of the cases was that of documentation where some children were being sent back without a Tesquera, a national ID, which means that they can't access education and um, stronger forms of employment. Um, in terms of the returns processes themselves, the safeguards which exist in terms of how children should be um, returned are also not always being put into play. Some of the children said that their families hadn't been contacted before their return or that they themselves had to contact their family. Um, there were instances when child who was handcuffed on the flight on the way back or children who are coming back, um, you know, without a, a well-known family member with them. So it's not happening in every case. There were some cases where all the safeguards are being respected, but it is something which should be happening kind of consistently and throughout if we want to be sending children back to Afghanistan, just kind of very broadly, I think we were shocked to see the lack of accountability around returns of children to Afghanistan as they're currently being conducted. Thank you. Um, thank you, Marion. Um, we will leave it there for today. Um, we've heard some very interesting points. Um, the first, I mean, just to briefly uh, catch up those who've joined the call midway through, um, this is not um, a polemic against all returns under all circumstances um, from Europe to Afghanistan. Um, this research highlights uh, the fact that even the basic um, requirements that are there under European laws and treaties um, are not being honored um, from the European side as far as this research shows. Um, there are serious reasons to be concerned about the conditions um, of return of children, of the, their own rights being um, looked after in this process and their own views taken into account. Um, but for 
a complete picture of this, I would strongly recommend um, you look at our hashtag Deeply Talks, where there's a link through to the full Save the Children report, um, where Marion Guillaume, who joined us today kindly from Kabul, was the lead author. And you will also find uh, my recent investigation on, on the vulnerability contest. It's a, a narrative story which uh, looks at the experience of three Afghan boys currently in Europe's asylum um, system and um, their experiences in, in the war in Syria as child soldiers um, and the choices and the conditions in which they now live uh, on the island of Lesbos. Um, that is it for today's uh, Deeply Talks. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, a full uh, recording of this um, will be uh, will be on our site um, within the next two days. Um, and do tweet any follow-up questions that you have. Uh, we'll try to address them for the print version um, of this Deeply Talk. Thanks, Marion, and thanks to everyone who was able to join us today. Bye-bye.